Okay. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you, Lord, again for the gift of our lives from you. We would not be here. Um, we didn't create ourselves. Um, you made us freely. You call us to a love given freely, um, not with costs. Um, um, thank you also for the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass, your words to us, hard words, um, um, to, be, to be careful of finding faults too easily in others without looking at our own. Strengthen in us a spirit of modesty and humility. Um, help us to be open to you, to find a strength in you to do those things that are not easy for us. We carry our fall with us, always. Um, help us in our struggles to overcome it. Can't do it without you. Um, ask for a special blessing on David and Millie. Um, surround David with your protection. Heal him, please. Help his healing go well. Um, help them to have a heart, a um, quiet heart. I think it's always, in some ways, harder for a spouse when somebody comes home because he or she not a lot they can do except watch over somebody and that's not a, it's not a small chore. So be with Millie. Watch over Bob and Marcy too. Um, protect him. Help heal him. Um, whatever his uh, this ailment is. And be with Darlene. Um, um, let this calendar move up to make a time for her. Um, meanwhile, um, help her heart to quiet. And we learned from Boethius something that I take seriously, and I hope everybody else does. There is no bad fortune. Whatever seems to be evil um, has got a good God behind it always. That's our faith. So, um, it's so often when bad things happen to us, we're quick to get negative. Um, we've learned, we've had help learning, but that's not so. The problem is the way we see things. Um, help us not to forget that. The difficulties can be graces if we enter them that way. So let it be so for her, and let it be so for the rest of us and all of our work. Um, here at the beginning of fall in this startup, I ask a blessing on all that we're doing. Um, help um, all of us to bring a spirit of openness to these works. And not forget, we're not reading these to be smart, to become smarter people. Um, when we learn something, we're asked to live it. Um, these writers show what we can do, what we can be, and they often show Christ to us where we don't see him. Help us to take these readings and live them in our lives to be more able to bring Christ to what we do. We offer these prayers to you, Christ our Lord. Amen. Mm -hmm. Amen. Promise of the Holy Spirit. If anybody didn't get coffee because there were no cups, there are no cups. <laughs> okay, let's start. Quick review. Um, it's hopper. Oh, God. <laughs> you are. What's the word um, when you when a knight a king? Knights, you are a knighted sergeant of arms, whatever. <laughs> um, <coughs> Bev, I'm so grateful to you for that. I, no, I really am. 
my mind goes, I, mean, I know you all know that because you're experiencing it. Some things I remember. It's the benefit of having been here long enough. There are times when I forget the, um, the um, not the wind ever, but kingfishers. Do you have, I would have gone through it. I just would have not for, do you all, if, do you all, does anybody have supernatural love? Anybody have it? Copy. <coughs> dang, 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 dang. Do you have a talk? You should. It should be recent because we did it on. Oh, good. Here. I'd like everybody to stop. I don't want you to read it. I want you to hear it. You already know. <coughs> Did you make the announcement about next week? Oh, um, awesome. <coughs> Boy. Next week we're back in the kitchen room because this room is going to be used for photographs, I think, for the next month and a half. Five weeks. So just plan to meet back in the, it's in the back kitchen area um, for the next. Oh, oh yes, bring a jacket. Here, boss. <laughs> oh, you poor things. We just know. This culture is getting soft. Um, so back there, I think that's it. Um, be sure to pay, leave Suzanne money for, for the books and for the study guide, okay? Before you leave today. I'm going to read this. Jay, mostly for you, everybody's heard this, but I want, I want you to hear it, and I'm, I'm always glad to read it anyway. Um, I read it Tuesday night because I wanted people to realize, you know, that Christ is there and we don't see him, and we started. I couldn't get through the end again, God, this poem. Um, <clears throat> I should be able to do it better here. I think one of the reasons I break up at the end of this poem is because when she said, when I was only four, you know, the mother and she, that... I'm always left, I think, I don't, I, I, otherwise I don't know why I break up, why it's so hard for me to finish this poem. Because you, you, you're, you, the, part of the meaning of the poem that we haven't gone into is that it's, there's a whole spiritual dimension between the mother who tells the story when she was four. So implied in the whole thing is this, whatever's happened between the time when she was four and now that she's a, you know, a mother, a woman, a mother woman. And it, se it seems to me that what you feel at the end of the poem is this sort of unfathomable vulnerability of a child. She wasn't injured in any serious way. She pricked her finger, you know. But it makes us aware of how innocent kids are, how absolutely vulnerable they are, and how much they don't understand. There's no way this little four-year-old girl would have understood what was going on. So what the poet does in going back to this four-year-old is, is bring in a whole dimension, just this enormous spiritual world that's part of what went on and most people don't see, but it has to do with the child. And you know from my own reading of it that I really believe that moment um, is, signifies more than what's in the poem because I think what happens in that moment is that's the beginning of a calling. Remember, word blossoms flower, if you can remember. 
that's a point at a, in a person's, this is a poet. So that, it's like Aeneas in the Aeneid, when you're called. And when you first hear that call, you don't hear it. <laughs> and the first times that we do hear a call, we don't hear it well. You know, we, there's, there's this breakdown in communication between God and us. We don't understand God very well. That's one of the truths of the Aeneid. He keeps getting it wrong. Um, I really believe what's going on here is this is the moment when this girl is called to be a poet. So the dimensions of meaning this are so deep, and she's four. I mean, how, how can you not feel how vulnerable, how completely vulnerable to a whole world that's a, you know, going to open to this child about which she's unaware, completely unaware? I, that's my guess. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't know why I break up. But then, you know, always is a struggle for me. But I want to read this. Here's the meaning of the... Nothing happens in this poem. We've already gone through this. A four-year-old pricks herself. She's knitting this sampler, says beloved, and her dad, who can't figure out why she's preoccupied with the word carnation, goes to the dictionary, like most intellectuals. And he clearly misses it. He just doesn't see. He's in his head what's going on with this girl. And, and I've asked you, remember, as you hear it, hold on to the words, tomb. That's the father's hallway. This is a scholar. He's in his head. It's described like a tomb. It's a place for the dead. The word needle in French goes back to clue, flesh. It's nails. Its meaning is nails. Not needle. Carnation. Nails. Carnation. Yeah, doc, nails. In the French, the, one of the meanings of it is nails. So there's an association of nails with a needle, and she pricks herself, and the, the nails and the cross. Um, carnatio, flesh, in, incarnation, in flesh. God enfleshed himself. Everything in, the, everything in the poem speaks. The needle, the thread, the beloved. Um, where do we hear the word beloved? Constantly in Mass. Where? Oh. Paul's letters. You know, so many of them open, beloved. Okay. <coughs> she's she's um, she's stitching, <coughs> beloved. <coughs> At the very end, when she pricks herself, she goes, Daddy, Daddy. What's that from? What? Father, father. Father. So there's almost nothing going on in this poem that doesn't take us back to the crucifixion. Who sees it? How many readers will pick up this poem and <coughs> see it? And over and above all these is this all things speak. The thread, the needle, the, the sampler, the girl. When the father goes to the page, words come off the page. The dictionary speaks. It com he completely misses it. It's about obligations. He's in his head. What's happening is an immediate participation in the crucifixion of Christ. But this notion of a logos, we've completely lost it in our world. Who was the means of creation? Christ, the Word. What does logos mean? The Word. There's not, we learn this from Boethius, there is not a thing going on in our life that doesn't have God behind it. That's why Boethius can say, there's no bad fortune. Whatever misfortune takes place, God's allowing it. Because he's protecting our free will, he wants us to learn the gravity of our choices. How can we do it if we don't learn to take more seriously our choices? 
we often have to bear them. How do we see the implications of them? If we could live in an aim and you know in our heads, we could do away with consequences. But we're constantly laboring under them. It's teaching us to be more careful. Because what did we lose from the garden? I mean, we made a bad choice. And we were wounded by it. So um, um, God allows it um, to, allows us to suffer from our actions, hopefully so that we can learn to take more seriously the weight of our choices, the possibilities. Does he want us not to risk? I don't believe that. Not for a moment. I believe God wants us to risk, to have the courage to trust in him. But, but he, you know, when we keep making mistakes and realize how stupid we can be, I think we turn to God more often, too. You know, when we're younger and think we know everything, I think it's harder. But as we age, I think generally most of us find ourselves wanting to get closer to him. So everything, everything in, this, in the poem tells, everything speaks, okay? And it's why I wanted to read the Hopkins. I'll read it afterwards, but I don't want to read this. This is a good way to start. So in the poem, the poem's about a girl pricking herself. It's about nothing. Nothing happens. In terms of dr drama, a little girl pricking herself, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Nothing's going on. <laughs> That's part of the except everything is. Okay? That's part of the beauty of this poem. Supernatural Love. By it's it's um, Gertrude Schnackenberg. She's an American poetess, contemporary. So this is our time. Supernatural love. <clears throat> so don't it just Remember, I've always asked you to read them aloud because we, when they're in our heads, if we just read them silently, they're angelic. There's no body. I've been asking you for years, get out of your heads. Because there were too angelic. That's the Protestant mind. That's not a Catholic. The body is absolutely essential to us. Get out of your heads. Read the poem because when you read them, you give, you give unincarnated, or, yeah, unincarnated thought a body. You give it sound. Okay? So read them. Supernatural love. My father at the dictionary stand touches the page to fully understand the lamp-lit lamp -lit answer tilting in his hand is slowly scanning magnifying lens a blurry glistening circle he suspends above the word carnation. Then he bends so near his eyes are magnified and blurred one finger on the miniature word as if he touched a single key and heard a distant plucked infinitesimal string, the obligation due to everything that's smaller than the universe. That's what he wrote in the dictionary. I bring my sewing needle close enough that I can watch my father through the needle's eye. There's another illusion. Can a camel get through a needle's <coughs> eye? No, but God can do anything. I can watch my father through the needle's eye as as through a lens ground for a butterfly. There it is again. From a, what is a butterfly? <coughs> From a caterpillar, you know. As through a lens ground for a butterfly who peers down flower hallways towards a room shadowed and fathomed as the study's gloom. Whereas a scholar bends above a tomb to read what's buried there, he bends to pour over the Latin blossom, I am four. I spill my pins and needles on the floor trying to stitch beloved X by X. 
My dangerous bright needle's point connects myself illiterate to this perfect text I cannot read. My father puzzles why it is my habit to identify carnations as Christ flowers, knowing I can give no explanation but because, what else does a child say? Word roots blossom in speechless messages the way the thread behind my sampler does where following each X, I awkward move my needle through the word whose root is love. He reads, a pink variety of clove, Carnaccio, the Latin meaning flesh, as if the bud's essential oils brush Christ's fragrance through the room, the iron-fresh odor carnations have floats up to me, a drifted secret, bitter ecstasy. The stems squeak in my scissors. Scissors are speaking. The stems squeak in my scissors. Child, it's me. Turns the page to clove and reads aloud. The clove, a spice dried from a flower bud. Then twice as if he hasn't understood, he reads. From the French for clue, meaning a nail. He gazes motionless, meaning a nail. The incarnation blossoms, fresh and nail, flesh and nail. I twist my threads like stems into a knot and smooth beloved, but my needle caught within the threads, thy blood so dearly bought. Needle strikes my finger to the bone. I lift my hand, it is myself I've sewn. The flesh laid bare, the threads of blood my own. I lift my hand in startled agony and call upon his name. Daddy, Daddy. My father's hand touches the injury as lightly as he touched the page before where incarnation bloomed from roots that bore the flowers I called Christ when I was four. I love this poem more than I can say. It's extraordinary. Um, What does a little child of four know? God, (laughs) she's participating in crime. What parent knows? How often do we go through the world and something happens child gets cut, we put a band-aid on it. Go off and go off to our work. Do we have any sense if in a larger spiritual world of what might be the implicate the hidden implications of that moment? You know, that's what the poets have been showing us all along. So can you get kingfishers? Can you get that out? <laughs> this is for Bev. <laughs> Okay, you all know Gerard Manley Hopkins was um, a Jesuit priest. He, he, he was raised Anglican. Remember, we've gone through this. He was a part of the Tractarian movement in England. And a, a, he, along with a large number of other people, um, John Henry Newman is the most famous convert. Um, but the Protestants were gathering to, to um, address what they believed were important reforms because the English church had become so lax, the latitudinarian liberal church. Um, That's always been true. And when they went to work, started writing these tracts and investigating the history behind the church, they realized that the problem wasn't in the Protestant world, in the immediate political problems that they were looking at, it was in the Protestant church itself. And they realized going back what had happened when the Protestant church formed and broke from Rome. And a number of them converted, John Henry Newman, and, and Hopkins was one of them. He became a Jesuit priest. And, and you know, he, I think I've said this, um, his ordination had to be made in secret 
because mm -hmm. at that time the Jesuits were being persecuted and he started writing poetry at an early, he, he just very much of an artistic sensibility. And um, I think at the time of his ordination, he burned all of his earlier poems. He didn't want his poetry to get into the way of his calling. Can you imagine that? And continued to write though, and, um, and as I suggested before, he, he's one of the great innovators in the English language because of what he did. What he did was go back to old English, Anglo-Saxon English, with that strong alliterative sense, and combined it with syllabic, syllable numbers. Um, we all remember that because we went through it, yes? Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. I remember that. Say yes, so he doesn't repeat it. <laughs> I do remember. I'm feeling so much like a teacher returning to a class right now. You're going to have to pardon me for a couple, probably a week or so, I think. Anyway, he... Um, been off for three months. <laughs> um, the Wind Hover, I think, is one of those perfect poems in the English language. I think it's extraordinary. But I, I want to read Kingfishers because of what we're going to do with Chaucer today. So just hold on and remember this because it'll, it'll go to a question that I'm going to ask you at the very end of things. Gerard Manley Hopkins, Kingfishers Catch Fire. <clears throat> remember the alliteration the heavy beat because it's his way of making language spring that was his word, sprung rhythm, spring to life to, to catch it because there are certain things that jump out of this as kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame as tumble, wait let me, sorry I gotta because I don't want to go back over this I'm not going to talk about it when I'm done I'm going to just let it sit with you um what he's talking about is the fact that everything in creation speaks. Every single thing, just like Schneckenberg. Um, there was a word in Latin that St. Thomas used, um, suppositum in Latin, suppositum. It was his word to indicate that everything in, this is so important, everything in creation is a subject in its own right. Every tree is itself, it's not another tree. Um, I think women are closer to this in the care that they give for flowers because I've heard of people, women talking to flowers, you know, as if they're, they're not, they're beings, I mean, they're flowers, they're not person. But Thomas knew that each thing in nature had its own self. It was itself, a tree, a cloud, even if it's shifting, a porpoise, a dog, you know. One of the effects of a fall that I've argued is at, in, in a pre-lapsarian world, our love was turned completely to God. And Adam and Eve had to be one with each other in that love. There was no subject-object dichotomy. Whatever, whatever speaking went on between Adam and Eve, it had, it had to be in poetry. There's no way they could have spoken anything that wouldn't have been in perfect harmony, beauty, order. There would have been no tripping over. I mean, they would have been one with each other, the way Dante and Beatrice are in the Paradiso. One with each other. I can't imagine that. Um, it's hard for me to even imagine speaking. It's as if they would have known what was in their thoughts. You know, they were so one with each other and one with. Each other. But there was no subject-object dichotomy. One of the effects of the fall is this dichotomy. Our tendency, because we're so self-centered, is to objectify things. Men treat women as objects. That's. I mean, you hear that all the time. I, I'm sad that we don't hear the other. Women treat men as objects. I have no, no question about that. 
Um, to let women off the way we have in the modern world is to me one of the biggest diseases of our age. Men treat women as objects. So do women. They treat men as objects. We objectify each other. The whole point of marriage is to become one. To overcome that. How easy is that? Or is that going to happen without crosses? I'm assuming every. The, 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 I mean, marriage is a cross because we have to learn to put ourselves away to enter into another. And that means to risk taking on all the disorders of another person. And you know, the, the greater tendency is to turn away from it because the burdens sometimes become cross like. <clears throat> Why is it important that we become one? Because our God is Trinitarian and one with each other. Imagine the three persons of the Trinity seeing each other as objects. I hope this is clear. We're made in God's image. Our God is Trinitarian. He's not a solitary God. I'm going to get to this in Milton. Our God is Trinitarian. Milton isolates him, remember? He's alone. What a horrible... Our God is not isolated. He's Trinitarian. If we're made in his image, it means we were meant to love and be loved. That's in our nature. So we live with this dichotomy. We objectify things, right? St. Thomas said, all things, in nature, this is, all things in nature are moved by love. Everything in nature moves towards the good of a sunflower. When the sun is going across, the, the sunflower is going like this. A wolf goes after a rabbit. He's not being evil. It's, it's the good of the food that he's at, you know, to... So, to St. Thomas, there's nothing in the universe that wasn't motivated by love because that was the nature of its creator. Um, and he knew that each thing in nature was this suppositum, this subject, this self. So each tree is itself. Each flower has itself. Do we see it that way? Particularly in the scientific mind? Absolutely not. We objectify a flower. We try to break down its chemical or physical properties. How often does anybody come into union with the flower? I know that's going to sound really... I'll give you one. This is so stunning. How does St. Francis stand out from all the other orders that began? He himself as a person? When he made his turn in life, he left the war and said, enough, put that behind, turn to God. His response to the world was, oh God. brother, son, sister, moon. The birds. He was the first man that overcame that dichotomy in a major way to look at everything in creation as his brothers and sisters, that he was one with them. This is our parish. How many people fully appreciate that? If we are called to anything being in this parish, God, if we're called to anything, it should be get over that. Be grateful for a flower. Stop walking. <laughs> this is Merchant of Venice. You guys need to come Tuesday night when we're doing Merchant of Venice. <laughs> anyway, um, so for St. Thomas, there, each thing was a subject. Okay, So it's a little bit like supernatural love. Everything in nature speaks. Do we hear it? Do we, do we really live with some of The whole fundamentalist world, Protestant fundamentalism, Islamic fundamentalism, have destroyed nature. The fundamentalists, nature is destroyed, corrupted, ruined. There's no more logos to the fundamentalists, not for the Christian fundamentalists, not for the Islamic fundamentalists. Pope Benedict spoke to this in Regensburg years ago. 
is Regenberg. You can go online. It's really important to us. The implications of having lost any sense of the logos in our life. <coughs> so, we just saw, experienced something of that in supernatural love. That's what Hopkins is dealing with here. Okay. Um, now, just pay attention because each thing is doing what each thing does as a subject at that thing, and even even the the rocks going down the well speak. And even the bell, that's a beautiful pun. You know how a bell's clang? He plays on the word tongue because the bell has that tongue, the rim of it and the gong. It's called a tongue. So he's punning on the tongue. But the whole point of it is there's not anything in nature that does not speak itself. And if they all speak, it can only because there had to be something they all had in common that spoke. The word. The word. Okay? So, Gerard Manley Hopkins, Kingfisher's Catch Fire. As Kingfisher's Catch Fire, Dragonflies Draw Flame, has tumbled, and, and you all know what onomatopoeia is? Onomatopoeia is the words imitating the, the thing itself. So, you know, just be aware of that when you hear these lines. As Kingfisher's Catch Fire, Dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim in roundy wells, stones ring. Like each tuck string tells, each hung bell's bow swung finds tongue to fling out brought its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors, each one dwells. There's a play, the indwelling of the spirit. You know, they dwell in each other. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoor, each one dwells, sells, goes itself, myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I say more, the just man justices keeps grace, it keeps all his goings graces, acts in God's eye, when in God's eye he is Christ. For Christ plays in ten thousand places, lovely in limbs and in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. It's interesting to watch the hierarchy in, in the opening um, octave, the two quartets. He's talking about the way in which each thing in nature has a self and it speaks itself. And he goes from that to man, because man's the highest thing in creation. What does man do? If he's doing what he should do, he's, he's practicing justice. He's trying to bring justice to what everything he does in Christ, in love. Um, and that means Christ is, be he's the word. He's behind everything. So we're off. We're off. Okay. I'm going to try to make this as quick a review as I can. Um, <coughs> Don't the two of you I start? Did not clear my oh, you and you. I and, didn't. In case anybody here's Eve one and Eve two. Don't even let them sit together at the same table. I'm sure you all heard that. <clears throat> well, now that you've used up all of your review time. <laughs> you know, teachers do have the prerogative of dismissing some students from classes.
That's how much we miss you guys. We, I've genuinely missed you guys all summer long. I mean, we kept getting calls. <laughs> they were missing us, and you know, because you get used to doing this. And um, I was glad for the break, and I'm sure you guys were too. But it's it's all it's good to see you again. It's, really, it's good to be back with you guys again. Catholic Protestant, very very quickly. Um, I want to go through this as quickly as I can. Um, oh no. God. I'm going to try to go back as quickly as I can and, and cover the most seminal, the most major points of that Protestant Catholic thing we did. We looked at Milton's Paradise Loss and began with that, even though it came later than Dante, because I wanted to start with the Protestant world so that we could set the Catholic world against it afterwards. We saw that for Milton and for the Protestant theologians, one of the fundamental differences between the Protestant and the Catholic is that the Protestant believes that the effects of the fall were complete. Man was ruined. Milton says, all corrupt. All the Protestant divines believe that our essence was destroyed, ruined. We, we live in depravity. The only way out of it is through grace. And you know, if you read that um, link I gave you, that the typical response of the Protestant is, you're justified by faith, right? Um, but that's a justification that's completely external. It, it's called, in the church, it's called imputed. It's like snow covering dung. That you're saved because that, that um, saving, that justification is imputed from Christ to everybody. Okay? Because they believe on your own, we're completely depraved. I mean, genuine. That's why there are so many horror stories coming out. I mean, movies, if you look at the movies coming out weekly, 80% of them are horror stories. I, I want to get back to this in a minute, but the, the modern world has been darkened by an, a Manichaean element, a belief that evil is this real thing. So one of the, one of the major... Um, beliefs of the Protestant mind was that the effects of the fall were complete. And it's only by God's grace that we can come out. The Catholic does not believe that. The Catholic believes that you cannot, you cannot ruin an essence. You can't ruin God's essence in man. We believe we were wounded. We call the effects of that wound concupiscence. And I, I know this personally, and I'm trusting everybody here knows it, that um, that concupiscence to us, I mean, I, I certainly know it for myself, when we're under the thrall of concupiscence, when we're trying to answer, let me put it more generally, my own experience is that I found it pretty easy to do a lot of things in life. I was athletic, I, you know, I, um, trying to get a hold of my own sins and put them away day by day. It's like meeting a, da a daily defeat. I mean, as much as I want to put away my sins, I keep meeting, I keep running into them again and again and again and again. I'm, I'm assuming that's true for most of us. But So when you experience that, it would be easy to conclude we are corrupt. We can't do it. The Catholic does not believe that. The, the Protestant believes that the effects were complete, that we lost our free will and reason. Gone, corrupted. It's only by God's grace that either of those can be restored in any way. When we read the Divine Comedy, you, you saw an absolutely Catholic treatment of it because where were the virtuous pagans? In hell, the top level. Mm -hmm. 
Can virtuous pagans go to heaven, even though they're virtuous? No, but they had their free will. They had Aristotle and, and, and Plato, extraordinary minds. They showed us great truths. So they're not depraved men, but um, <clears throat> virtue in itself cannot get us to heaven. So Dante's absolutely Catholic in that way. The Protestants believe we lost our free will, we lost our reason, it's only by grace that we can use them well at all. So Milton brings that very, I, to me it's Manichaean, because it implies this dualism, evil, evil is everything associated with the body, spirit is associated with what's good, and those two are in eternal conflict, that's the Manichaean philosophy. It always enters religious beliefs. It, 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 it infected Christian Middle Ages in lots of ways. The church had to fight against it. I believe it's colored our faith today. I'll, I'll get to it in a second. Milton darkened everything. <coughs> he takes as the epic hero of Paradise Lost, Satan. We've gone through this. Remember, Satan is the great epic hero. He goes on this epic quest. He wants to find this world. And but everything that he does is motivated by a ban. But everything he does critiques the ancient epics, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, and he makes those heroes bad. The gods over that world, that Homeric and Virgilian world, are bad. They're evil. Because the source of them, you all remember, are the fallen demons. So Milton takes that whole epic tradition and stands it on his head, critiquing it, saying there's no good there, because it, in his mind, it's all corrupt. You know, I mean, you know my own truth. I love those. I love the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, what they teach us, because in my mind they teach us the greatest natural natural virtues that we have. So Milton took the the thinking of the Reformation, and um, and and because those thinking that those thoughts were personal to him, he brought them to what he did with Paradise Lost, and we see that in the in the epic. We come out of that, if you remember, um, Satan is finally defeated and Adam and Eve are, are tempted and fall and they're removed from the garden. And we're told at the end, Milton, all corrupt. That's the effect of the fall. All corrupt. Those are his words. When we see Adam and Eve leave, the, the virtues that they carry out with them are patience and endurance. Those, for Milton, those are the two principal virtues we're left with after Christ. <clears throat> now, two things to hold on to. One is, um, well, three. One is that you remember the most important way of knowing for Milton was angelic. I think that's typical of the Protestant mind. That, that's a longer argument. I don't want to go into it here, but it, 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 it's platonic. It, it lives in a faith that's removed from the natural order. The mode of knowing for Adam, if you remember in Paradise Lost, was angelic. It was Raphael and Michael who came to teach him, and Raphael made clear that's what Adam would take out of the garden. So he's, he's already interpreting Scripture, that these are the things that you'll never, you know, Scripture's not been written yet, we're back at the fall. So what he's doing is endorsing a platonic way of reading, an angelic way of reading. His treatment of Christ in that, in the 10th book, to me is embarrassing. His treatment of the cross is embarrassing as well. He gives almost no time to, to Christ. There's, and the, the battle in heaven when the, the good angels and the bad angels meet, to me is laughable. Um, the sun, 
the battles finally turn when the sun comes out, but there is, um, there's no way for the sun to lose. If God's omnipotent, omniscient, there's no way God can be defeated. It's a laughable. What, and it seems to me that's the one moment when, when Milton goes too much back to Homer. And he, he treats it in a Homeric way. But those are some of the dark things carried forward. If you go back to the ancient epics, which Dante carried forward, what you see in the Iliad, the great virtue of the Iliad, remember, is Kleos. You already know this, this honor. The great flaw in the Iliad is that all men are killing each other over a mistaken view of honor. Paris took Helen, they fought the war. The book begins nine and a half years into the war. Achilles, that's that, the importance of that opening is he breaks from Agamemnon. Remember when the man comes with his um, political offering, he wants to ransom his daughter and act, the king refuses. And Achilles says, basically saying, grow up. Um, we've got this plague. They suffered a plague for 13 days. The Greeks are dying. Give, 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 accept the ransom. Give, give the daughter back because the Greeks are dying. Agamemnon says, I'm king. I'm not going to, imagine a CEO. God, this stuff, right? This, I've already said it. The Iliad is probably the greatest critique of America we've ever had. And it was written 2800s before America's founding. What's the principal ruling this war? Booty. He's not going to give her up and be without his prize. How many CEOs are going to give up their millions of dollars and share that among their workers? <coughs> He's not going to do it. Achilles gets to a point of almost killing him. Athena says, no. Your honor will be restored. He withdraws from the war, and that begins the devastation of the Greeks, because without Achilles, the Greeks are failing everywhere. Agamemnon brings, <coughs> sends an emissary to Achilles in the ninth book. I, I just will stop here because there's too much to go. He offers cities, women, wealth, booty everywhere. Achilles says, such things I need not. I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. What moves the men in this book? Booty, material possessions. What moves Americans? Material possessions. Um, Highest at the top of those possessions, it could be horses, armor, swords, money, women. That's what drives that book. Paris took Helen, the, the opening, um, it, um, you, when you, the ransom is to get his daughter back, a woman. She's captured. Agamemnon won't give her back. And then he threatens Achilles to take his woman, and when he does, it's when Achilles is going to kill him. So people fight over honor because they don't want to lose anything, these possessions, because possessions determine who, the worth of a man. How much, think about that today. The house we live in, the area, the neighborhood, how much importance we give to material things in our life. Church calls us, Christ calls us out of that. Live, your treasure's not, you can't take it with us. It, it, it creates these, it, it has created such a crisis in our world. It's an interior crisis. If we define our lives in these things, what's happening to us within? Um, what Achilles realizes is, if the worth of a man is conferred by another man by booty, by wealth, cars, if it's conferred, it can be taken away. If it can be taken away, does that mean a man's of no worth? The great insight of the Iliad is there is this intrinsic worth given by God. I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance and he denies it. It isn't until his friend Patroclus dies, remember, that he comes back in the world. So the founding work of American civilization 
or sorry, Western civilization, um, in the not the prophetic tradition, but the epic literary tradition, is the Iliad. That's our founding work. What's at the center of it? This intrinsic dignity to the human person. It's given by God. And you know from the Iliad that Achilles re-enters the war and there's a fight and they finally defeat Troy. The Odyssey. What's the great virtue in the Odyssey? Marriage. Odysseus does everything he can to come home. Penelope is doing everything she can to hold off these suitors. Um, and if we look at the other marriages, Menelaus and Nestor's marriage, they're good marriages, but they're lacking something. What Odysseus and Penelope come to is this marriage because of the struggles they both endured. So they enter into spiritual depths, particularly Odysseus in his wanderings, because he, remember he has to particularly learn to deal with the woman, Calypso and Circe, the, the, because those are the two dangerous archetypes. He has to learn the real nature of woman if he's to come home. And it's only when he does that he learns things that he can be the man that he was given to be. And that's when he and his, and his, his and Penelope's marriages um, recovered in the book ends, you know that. So the Iliad, this great integrity at the center of man's soul. In the Odyssey, this union of something more between a man and a woman that's not conventional. It's not Menelaus or Nestus. It, it's a marriage that's the fruit of these struggles between involving the two of them. So a new, a new image of marriage. In the, in the Aeneid, and Virgil takes both books, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and incorporates them. The, the first part of the Aeneid is about the wanderings of Aeneas. It, it lines up with the Odyssey. The second half of the Aeneid lines up with the Iliad, the battle in, to, to found Rome. He, he takes that whole world forward. So Virgil makes clear you, you can't refound in the future without carrying the past with you. The Odyssey did that. The Odyssey had to carry the Iliad forward. So what we're learning from the epic tradition is you, the, every one of them is about the struggle of a people to deal with some disorder. They can't see the roots of it. They don't understand, but they're caught in it. America's in that state today. We're caught in this order, disorder. We don't see it very well. Somebody is, is given a divinely appointed task. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas. They have to do something. This individual is called out to do something that other men won't do. It's a painful task. Um, it's like Abraham, David. It's the whole line of you know, being called to these. He's called out to do something. And it's because of what he does that a people rediscovers its, itself. It's renewed and it takes on a new identity. That's the nature of the epic tradition. Look at how that lines up with the prophetic tradition. Abraham called out. Um, Isaac, or um, Ishmael, the outcast one. Isaac, the chosen one, going forward to David and then um, the 12 tribes and then finally Christ, who himself is doing exactly what those, they're all prefigured prefigurations of Christ, answering these disorders of the people. That's what's extraordinary about those ancient poets, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, and then um, Christ. And then Dante will go on to do the same. You know, we've done it all. So the only point I want to make here is that we, what we saw is um, the difference between a Protestant Catholic mindset. 
that there's this dark element to the Protestant world in its beginnings, the way it conceives of things. For Dante, just to mention some of them, Dante affirms the goodness everywhere in creation. Bonum est diffusium. Bonum est diffusium. Bonum est diffusium. Bonum est diffusium. Goodness is diffusive. Goodness is diffusive. Why? Because God is infinite goodness. He, he diffuses it. It's everywhere present. You can see it everywhere in creation. For Dante, nature's not fallen. It's full of intelligibility. That's why scientists can work today. There's nothing in creation, nothing in creation that isn't intelligible. It doesn't matter a leaf, a porpoise, a sea anemone, you know, whatever it is. I mean, the scientists know that. Otherwise, what, what are the sciences doing if they're not working with the intelligibility of things? Everything in nature is intelligible. And if it is, because it's also different, a human's very different from a tree, from a porpoise, from a flower. If they're all different in species, and they're all good, and they're all intelligible, how could they all have that unless they had something in common? If they're all intelligible, they have mean, there's an order to them, a purpose. It implies a creator who created them all. So everywhere, everywhere in the Divine Comedy, we see this principle at work. When Dante takes us into hell, he... Um, he shows us the nature of sin. Oh. Oh. Um, and its specific characteristics. So we can learn how to identify it. The presumption is, if we, because all sins are different, if we can learn to see our particular sins, because we can see them, we have a help and answer. If we don't see them, we don't even know what to do. So it's not a broad, everything's corrupt. There are different kinds of sins. There are different violations of goodness. We violate good in various ways. Lust is a different violation from envy or you know, pride or anger or wrath. He's like a doctor helping us to see the specific nature of everything. Everything has meaning. And we saw that Dante cannot climb hell by himself, or he cannot climb the mountain. He cannot, he cannot return to God alone by himself. He needs help. And you know that three-quarters of the help is from Virgil. Virgil, The past comes in to help him. The whole ancient past comes in to help him. And then Beatrice, who's an image of everything salvific, picks up where Virgil leaves off and takes Dante through the heavens. A whole divine order is put into work to help Dante. We learn later in the poem that Dante was damned. So even though he wanted to return to God at the beginning, he was already damned because of the way he lived his life. That becomes clear. But this whole divine order, Mary going to Lucia, going to Beatrice, going to... That there's this community at work on his behalf. So he's not isolated. So as an epic hero, he's not isolated. He's not alone. Um, so... Um, in purgatory, we saw that there was nothing on the mountain that did not speak. Every ledge had his own art, was speaking to him. Everything in nature was speaking to teach him what to do. And finally, when we concluded, I said that there were two amazing things going on at the end, among others. But two of the amazing things were, as Dante, 
and Beatrice approach God, um, the mode of communication approaches the mode of communication between the Trinity of Persons. She already knows what he's thinking before he ever says it, which means they've begun to indwell that she is in him. Remember I talked about those, those reflexive verbs, you are in me, me, God is in me, me, and being me. There are all those reflexive actions to show that an indwelling takes place. Because at the heart of Christianity, we believe each individual is an, a unique individual person. But he was meant to love and be loved, to enter into communion with others. So there's that paradox. That, and and, and I, the, the Catholic world holds on to it because it holds on to the sacred and the sacraments um, and the unity in the church. So as the two of them are mo- approaching God, they're... Um, they're more indwelling, becoming more one with each other, even while they're remaining distinct. Um, um, the closer they get to God, the more they seem to resemble Christ, because we saw those images where you know, the veil of Veronica, Mary resembled Christ, that the closer, the closer they got to God, the more they saw Christ in other people. So... Suzanne's very different. Debbie's very different. Kathy's, you know, every, we're all, we all have different faces. What he was saying is that as we approach Christ, something Christ-like begins to appear in us. And you know, remember from, from your reading of that, we, that first comes to us with Beatrice because, remember, she's the Christ-bearer. When she comes to meet Dante in purgatory, she's the Christ-bearer. She's to bring him. So in some way, she always imaged him anyway. One of the questions we're going to be asking in all of this literature we've been asking all along, who are the people most Christ-like? Who are the Christ-bearers? When we turn to Chaucer, who are the Christ-bearers? Where, where, where is he at work in people? Where is this goodness at work in people, Christ appearing? And finally, at the end, the great, the great mystery and the, I think the great affirmation, the Divine Comedy ends with Dante asking um, for a blessing, a grace, to see the face of God. That was the great wish of the Jews. If you go through the Old, script, the Old Testament scriptures and the Psalms, it, over and over again, they long to see the face of God. They want to see the face of God. Dante comes to the end and he wants to see God. The beatific vision, it's our, it's our end as Christians. The, to see God, to the beatific, to see his face, to behold him, to stand in his presence. Dante asks for the grace, and it's suddenly given. And what he sees is the Father and the Spirit, two of the persons, but his, he loses words. He can't, he can't find the words to describe what he sees in the middle, because remember, the Son, who's an image of the Father, who is infinite, like God, infinite, limitless, who, who took on a human body, who limited himself by taking on our nature. So you're all following me, right? How do, you, how do you square an infinite God with a limited, a finite person that's got a body? That's the central mystery. That's the central mystery of our faith. He can't find the words, and it's on those words that, it's like he said, trying to square the circle, and then he gave that the description that ended each one of the cantos, and returned to the um, the stars moving among the stars and returns to earth. By the way, I was thinking about this. I want to pass this on. Um, Suzanne and I were at adoration on um, Thursday night. I've always had 
a little bit of trouble with um, adoration, but um, was meditating on it on Thursday night, and I've known this for ages. Our tendency as human beings, because we're corporeal creatures, is to limit things, to bound them. So when we think of God, it's natural for us to see a vase or a cup or to bound him. The notion of something infinite, I think, is, is very hard. It's not easy for us. If you've done Euclidean geometry, it's a little bit easier because you know in Euclidean geometry you enter into an intellected world, a world of the mind, not of the body. That's one of the powers of Euclidean system. So if, you, if one of the first um, postulates, I think, of Euclid is a point has no dimension. I'm right. I'm right. <coughs> point has no dimension. Because you're not, in, you're not in physical space anymore. You're in an intellected world. So it seems to me one of, the, one of the advances in our growth, if we study Euclid, is you, you're, you realize in your mind you move into an intellected order. It's not corporeal. So the notion of a point having no dimension is one of the first things you have to do when you begin Euclid. If you take that notion that because we're corporeal creatures, we tend to bound things, to put a body on them, to God, you know how hard it is. But that's what Christ did. He took on our body and he returned. Now, what's that going to be like in heaven? What is it like? When you look at the Eucharist, you've got a thing. It's a wafer. It's a wafer. Or, or wine. And it's, it's bounded. But if, if you think of it in Euclidean terms, you know, that, it, that here's a bounded thing, but it's also part of an infinite body, it can multiply forever. Because its ultimate source is infinite. Yeah? yeah. Am I going out on too much of a ledge here? <laughs> to me, it just makes the adoration, the Eucharist, more, less, you know, the, the, most of the secular world looks on it as a piece of superstition. Seems to me there's an there's always an intelligibility to these things if we can work for it. It seems to me there is in the Eucharist. You know, when we think about it, that if we get our minds straight, I don't think we always do that enough. But okay, three truths we came out of that period with. One is, one is purity of spirit. Purity of spirit cannot be, cannot be. National, racial, ethnic, sexual, it cannot be a part. Purity of spirit cannot be any of those things without diminishing it. It can't be Greek Orthodox. You know that I was raised. It can't be Greek. If you read that, that um, link I sent, you know that um, the one on the Protestant notion of justification. Included on that list was um, a battle going on between the Russian... Orthodox Church, and I think it was the Turkey or Serbian Orthodox Church, and they wouldn't allow communion between the two because they were at odds with each other. Once, once purity of spirit breaks from its unity, then people can make of it what they want. Protestants can take away, you know, the Presbyterians or the Congregationalists or the Baptists can take away the sacraments. Luther can take away the sacraments. I mean, once that authority goes down, People can do different things with it. It claims an authority. The position of the church is that's a fractured authority. There's something that's missing. So once a church becomes racial, it, it cuts against its unity. The, the, 
we are one. Um, if it becomes national, English, Greek, or German, or you know whatever, same thing. Um, so Catholicism means everybody. It's a unity. There's a central authority. Once you split out, the tendency for a part is for a part to, to claim that it's a whole when it's not a whole. And divisions occur. Then, then changes in dogma go on all the time. One of the things that I offered when we ended that section was the church was full of corruptions. All of the reformers were responding. The church was full of corruptions. The, the corruptions have got to be answered. But the answer to corruptions is not changing dogmas. You can't change the fundamental dogmas about Christ. When you start fooling around with his nature, you're, ch you're going at the heart of what Christ is. The first half dozen centuries of our church, we were struggling with heresies everywhere. Arianism, Sabellianism, you know, all of them. Nestorianism. One, one group thought that Christ was all man. The other church thought that Christ was all God. Another group thought that... Um, Christ was the Father coming down in another mode, not the Son. You know, they, they, were, they were doing what they rationally thought was correct. They, they weren't trying to be bad. They were trying to make sense of, but every one of them was in an error. Um, break away from that unity and, and all sorts of strange things happen. So purity of spirit cannot be racial, cannot be national, cannot be sexual, cannot be apart. Corruptions in the church can't justify changing dogmas ever. The source of all dogmas are in Christ. And in the churches he founded it. And finally, um, I, this may seem a stretch, but they're really related. I suggested before we broke that we have to rethink genres. <coughs> that in the pagan world, tragedy was a natural genre because for the pagan, Death was the end of things. Zit. So, if if thing if a problem grew to such an intensity that it. that big sigh. <laughs> See, if, um, God, my mind is so bad. If, if, um, if, if an act grew in its implications and it, and it took on catastrophic proportions, let's say, um, let's say Oedipus when he, he marries his mother and kills his father and doesn't know it and he finally sees it and he blinds himself. It can be Lear or Macbeth or when an act, uh, when the implications of an act begin to show, because very often when we do something, we, the, the, the first implications, the first signs may be very small. I'm sure that we've all had this experience. Do something and we see the implications of it two months later. And then six months later we see the implications were far greater than we saw. It can be with our children or in marriage or, you know, usually close ones, something. But they're much larger than we realize. So we know that there are implications to our choices that very often we don't see. That's why I made the point I did a while ago about free will, the, how God has to work with us, to the difficulties we present with. 
for the ancients, death was it. And very often, death, death in a tragedy took the form of some catastrophic event. The, the fullness, the full implications of something came out. It could have been Oedipus, it could have been Aeschylus in the Oresteia, when Orestes has to kill his mother, Clytemnestra, because she killed Agamemnon. They can become horrific. There was always something dark and horrible about tragedy. Tragedy always showed us the darkest things about ourselves. I'm sorry because I believe one of the failures of the modern world is that we've lost a tragic sense of things. I think we're healthier seeing how awful we can be. If we don't see that, we, we very often live shallower lives. But that changes with Christ. Because when he comes, he takes away, he answers those sins and offers us an afterlife in glory. So when Dante writes the Divine Comedy, he, he writes it, even though the first part of it is that in hell, he calls it the Divine Comedy. Why? Because hell, tragic actions, are no longer tragic. Anybody who ends up in hell is stupid, not tragic. He's stupid. Seriously. Because we have a choice. I mean, anybody who chooses, I mean, you've got a choice now. People think they're smart and refuse Christ. How, how bright is that? Well, let me put it differently. Can God ever be defeated? Look at Satan in, in Paradise Lots. Can God ever be defeated, defeated by anything evil? Absolutely not. That's why I have trouble with Milton, with the angels, you know, they, they, that Satan can disguise himself. To, to pull away from God, who is the source of all things, is to withdraw from his goodness. Evil is a privation. It's not a thing in itself. The, the um, Zoroastrian tradition is that good and evil are two equal things. It's Manichaean. It's usually goodness is spirit and evil is bad, but it, they, they believe that good and evil are, um, are co-eternal. You know those snakes that entwine? They're co-eternal. They're gone forever. If they're co-eternal, why not choose evil? Who cares? You're in a constant battle with good, but so is good with evil. I mean, it just goes on. That's a, that's a false philosophy. It makes no sense. It's a truncated philosophy. The only philosophy that's ever made any sense is the one in the West, and it's Catholic. Good or evil is a privation. It's a loss of. Because there was nothing but God. Did God make anything evil? No, everything's good. You can't destroy an asset. Everything's good. So we have to reconceive our notions of genre and rethink how we look at men. And that's what, one of the effects of what Christ did. Dante gives us hell. It's, if, you, you know, if you've read it, I'm assuming you all remember, it's scary to be in it. I told you the story with Suzanne when we were reading, and she got out of, finished the inferno and started reading the Purgatory. And I remember sitting in the UD lounge and her looking at me and giving this huge sigh. And she said, it's so good to be in a world of hope again. <laughs> You know, where people are moving. Because in hell, pe people want it. They want, they want that. That's what they want. That's what they've got. And that moment is fixed. They'll never be able to do it. And they're, they're fine with it. It's a horror to watch. In purgatory, people are changing. They're growing. In the Paradiso, there's this <coughs> infinite renewal. It's ongoing. Will you ever see the end of God if he's infinite? That's an extraordinary condition. So we have to reconceive genres. Dante called the Divine Comedy a Divine Comedy. There's nothing tragic to hell. It's foolish and stupid, but not tragic.
um, because people have a choice. And it's a pretty dumb choice if you think about it because nobody can overcome God. Nobody. For Satan, I mean, is there anything more stupid in the world than Milton Satan? Who, who can overcome God if he's the source of all things? For Satan, this is C.S. Lewis. For Satan to do what he's doing is like a man standing on a branch and cutting himself off from the root. How smart is that? You all have that picture, don't you? You're on a branch and cutting it from the... There's no way you can win. I mean, it's just a dumb thing. How great is our pride to get stuck there? So those are some of the truths we came out of. I'm, I just want to do two things, and then I want to quickly... Um, we did Boethius, and there are just two things I want to recall in that. One of them is that... Boethius says there is no, I don't want to go through the argument, we've done it. There is no fortune that's bad fortune. God allows evil um, for us to learn. um, And he does it protecting our free wills. To do anything differently would make him a puppet master and us puppets. He has to protect our free will. But there's, and this was one of the beauties of what Boethius showed us, there's nothing God's doing that's not taking the things that we do and trying to bring a good out of them. That's what we're called to do in our life if we're following Christ. To try to take whatever's going on and try to bring as much good out of them as we can. That's our call. That's following God. So there is no, there are no bad fortune. You remember, he went through this long argument before we got there, and it's too long to go into now. And the other thing was, remember that image of the still point at the center? He said that life is like, there's two forms of action, providence and fate. And fate is a description of people and the way they're acting on the circumference. of the, They're too caught up with the world. Um, and providence was that center point, that still point at the center. And he said... The closer that you move to your center, the closer you move to that still point, the closer you move to the simplicity of God. And it means it will change your life. That everything you do from that point will be different from what you do if you're on the surface um, constantly running. We're going to touch on that in Merchant of Venison. Then we did Chaucer, and we looked at the Knight's Tale, and there's only a couple things to think about there. The most important thing in the Knight's Tale was that Chaucer critiqued the, the medieval, the entire medieval notion, because that was one of the great notions of the Middle Ages, of courtly love. Courtly love. Um, and you remember, Arcide and Palamon both loved Emily. They, they had been brothers, cousins. They were brothers. They loved each other. They, they thought they would never be at odds with each other. Palamon sees this beautiful woman and he falls in love and then Arcita says, and Arcita says, it's mine, she's mine. And Palamon says, no, she's mine. They begin to quarrel. You know what happens. And what's interesting is Chaucer's exploring the nature of love in it to its object. Because remember, Arcita's allowed to leave through a friend who worked with Theseus. Palamon's there. Now think about this. Palamon's in jail. And he knows our seat is out. Palamon can see Emily, but there's an envy in him because he thinks our seat might get to her. So I wish I were out of prison. 
Arcite's out of prison and is envious of Palamon because Palamon can see Emily. So he, Chaucer's showing us the, the failure in the way that we love. If we could only have the object of our love, we would be happy. What he's showing us in that tale is there's something very possessive to the way we love. What, what real freedom is. Palamon's in jail, not free. Our seat's out. He'd rather be back in jail so he can see. So Chaucer's showing us that there's this possessive quality to the way we love. What happens, you remember, is that Palamon breaks free. The two knights gather, and they're going to kill each other. And Theseus comes across the two and says, hold off. Because at that point, they both owe him their life. They're, they've both broken the law. This whole question of law and mercy is fundamental to the play, you remember. He says, we're going to do this joust. Creates this big, um, not an auditorium, it's arena. It's enormous. And, and it's, a, it's a tribute, formally, symbolically, it's a trib, tribute to courtly love and knightly battle. Both. Because the rules are in place. Whoever wins that duel will have Emily. You remember what happened? Um, Arcite falls off. Palamon. Arcite. Oh, Arcite defeats Palamon. So he has Emily. And while he's doing his victory lap, the horse tosses him and he falls off and he dies. And before he dies, he offers Palamon Emily. Palamon already had to give up Emily because he was defeated. So both knights reach a point where they have to deny themselves for the woman that they love. And Emily's asked to deny herself because she's asked to marry when she didn't want to marry. So what Chaucer's showing us is that people can't love fully until they do what Christ did, which is deny themselves. So the Knight's Tale is this wonderful critique of... Um, courtly love, Christian love, and it's a refounding, and that's the important thing politically. We, we talked about the importance of this. What Chaucer's doing is, remember, Theseus is the founder. If you want to understand Western civilization politically, we did it in Shakespeare, and that's where I'm going in a minute. If you want to understand the nature of it, you've got to look at it, what it does politically. Theseus is the founder. He defeated the Thebes, Thebians because they're this old aristocratic people, too noble. They're killing each other. In fact, he, he comes on them, remember when they're at war. They're too noble. They have too noble a sense of the human person. And he defeats the Amazons. They're women who don't want to have anything to do with men. I don't understand why that, how that could be. but <laughs> He defeated the Amazons. So he represents a democratic impulse. That's the nature of Western civilization. Right? Not this noble aristocratic world where people look down on others, or the sexist world. So he's the founder of Greece's democracy, our notion of democracy, at its beginning. So what Chaucer does is take Theseus, a pagan founder, a pagan founder, and Christianizes it. He, he renews it. He refounds. It's a refounding work along, according to a Christian principle. Is that clear? You can see it, right? So he's doing what Virgil did with Homer and Dante. He's taking the past forward, and it happens to be out of founding, and renewing it as he goes. It's been a principle with these writers all along. Is that clear? I don't want to lose that. That's so important.
Yeah. What does that mean for us? It's clear. It means that's our calling. That's, we can't disown the past. However painful it is, however disordered, however disordered, we are called to pick up the past, it's our cross, and renew it. To bring Christ to it, to make it something it wasn't before. Keep telling our children they have to do that. If they don't, I'm going to kill them. <laughs> Suzanne shaking her head again. Um, if anybody's available to give me a ride home at the Okay, Midsummer Night's Dream. Mid Shakespeare in Midsummer Night's Dream, we've already done it. It's the Theseus story. You know, the, the lovers have to go into the city. But in Shakespeare, Shakespeare sets the lovers in the forest in the city against Pyramus and Thisbe. Now remember, the play begins when the father wants um, Hermia to marry Demetrius, and she doesn't want to marry him. She wants to marry Lysander. So there's a problem with the authority between a father and daughter. To escape the father's law, and because Theseus says, if you don't obey your father, you're going to either be sent to a nunnery or you're going to be killed. To escape the law, they run away from the city because the city is a place of love. They go into the forest, and there they almost kill each other. And it's there that Oberon does his work. I don't want to go into it all, but, but everything gets straightened out because of what Oberon does with that love potion. I believe that love potion's symbolic of poetry, what poetry can do. Link in one sense, we can't make good laws without better emotions. Poetry helps us, helps develop better emotions in us so that we can bring better laws to what we do. That's what Oberon does in the city. The lovers come out. Aegeus, the father, says, I want my will. I want the law. It's like Shylock. I want my will. Theseus says, so it seems like a contradiction. Instead of supporting the father the way he did in the beginning, he refuses him and says, I decline your will. You can't. Because he sees that the lovers are ordered. Love is rightly ordered now. So what comes out of that is um, law, the law of the city and love, are reconciled. They're brought together. The, the lovers can return to the city. So what Shakespeare is concerned about is this conflict between law and love. The effects that it has when they're divided in the beginning and everything that has to happen in order to bring them together, the political and the romantic. What we see at the end of the play, remember, is the mechanics are putting on the Pyramus and Skis, um, Thisbe skit. In that skit, Pyramus and Thisbe die. They're lovers who meet at the tomb, Ninus, who's the founder of Nineveh, of Babylon. So in the West, Theseus is alive. And this is really important. Shakespeare's writing in the Renaissance. This is 1700. You know, 16, 10, 8, 10, whatever he writes this, I can't remember. 1850, or 1558 something. Um, 1598, I can't remember. Theseus is alive in that play. He went back and took the founder of Western civilization and Christianized it again. That the lovers have to um, work together in a way. Oberon makes that possible. When they come out, they can return to the city. In the West, Pyramus and Thisbe die because the East does not have a principle of renewal in Wait. itself. Sorry? Where do they die? Pyramus, Pyramus and Thisbe uh -huh. by the tomb. Not in the no, in the east or west. In the play. 
They're in East. They're, they're, Ninus is the founder of, of Nineveh or Babylon. So what Shakespeare's doing is showing that the, the West contains within itself a power of renewal that the East does not have. Because in the West, we can bring religion and philosophy, faith and reason, law and love, justice and mercy together. Those are the accomplishments of the Western civilization with Christianity. That's our great task, to bring those together. So, um, that's where we, we, where, where we left. On the, on the edge of modernity, here's the way I want to put it. The great challenge from Shakespeare is the great challenge of the modern world to all of us, because Shakespeare's a modern. He's not Chaucer. We're going to go back to Chaucer right now, but Shakespeare's a modern. He picked up what Chaucer did as a medieval Catholic. We saw how he did that. Um, he reaffirmed Christ in the way he approached that um, ordeal between the two men. And remember what Theseus's words were to do it at the end when uh, Arcita was being buried? And uh, Emily was grieving over his grade, and Palamon, they were both grateful because they were, gonna, they were, gonna, they were eventually going to come together. Theseus' words were, were pure Boethian, right out of Boethius. He says to everybody present, make a virtue of necessity. Those were his words. Make a virtue of necessity. It doesn't matter what kind of fortune we meet, we're asked to bring a good out of it to see in it an occasion for virtue. I remember telling you the story of the priest that Susanna and I met in um, New Hampshire when we were there. Susanna met with him, and her, his words to her were, be, be thank, it changed, our, it, it introduced such an important element for both of us. He said, be thankful for everything, no matter how bad it is. Is that, typically, is that typical of Americans today? If you define your lives around money, success, and when you lose it, be thankful for everything, no matter how hard it is. Theseus is, here's the founding. It's a refounding. It's Chaucer as a Christian refounding the West. Originally it was pagan. It was noble and tragic. Now it's Christian and it's comic. Make a virtue of necessity. There is no fortune that isn't good fortune. Palamon, our seat, Emily all had to deny themselves. And once they did, they could learn to love the way Christ asked. Shakespeare's doing the same thing, except he's setting it against the East because he knows that he's facing a problem Chaucer didn't. Chaucer didn't have to deal with the city. After the Holy Roman Empire collapses, the modern states emerge with these totalitarian powers. And that's the problem we've inherited in our time because... We've got a world not united by a god. We've got secular states claiming absolute powers. What I think one of the reasons for the cut, how do you, how do you describe the proportions of migrations from immigrants today? All, millions all over Europe, Siberia, Africa, South America, millions and millions. They're coming from states who exercise the totalitarian power in ways that abuse people, that violate them. So the people, we're watching a world crumble, in a sense, under secular powers. And the problems that it set in motion are vast. 
Shakespeare's writing and giving importance to the city because he knows he's writing at a time when the modern states are emerging. This is what I'm going to do in Merchant of Venice when we meet on Tuesday. I'm going to go to this point. Um, so what happens in Shakespeare is not only are the lovers reconciled to the city, but the different classes of the city are reconciled with each other. The mechanics, the nobles, the ruler. That platonic model, I'll, I'll probably go back to it next week. So Shakespeare's showing us what has to happen in order to bring a city politically together. Um, and in one sense, it, it's by bringing law and poetry. Because the, the poet is the one that makes possible making good laws. And I hope everybody, it's only the good poet who does that. Because there's so many bad poets. That's Plato, remember. So that's our review. Now in the next two hours we'll do Chaucer. <laughs> Hold on, I want to take five, if I can. Can you, you all have five minutes? Yeah. Let me do this in five minutes. Here, quick, look at the, here, I'm going to do this really, really, and I'll pick up here, we'll start here, but I want to do this really quickly. I'm going to call the first three stories of Canterbury Tales a doorway into the whole um, journey, the whole, um, what's it called, a pilgrimage. Um, the Knight's Tale deals with a virtue, a genuine virtue. The, the Knight himself who tells the story is a virtuous man. And the story he tells is about virtuous knights. And they have to make radical changes, right? Because we see in the beginning, both these knights are very selfish. They, they're willing to kill each other over their love. Because, so their passions, their emotions are out of control. Their, their emotions are not governed. It's only when they learn to deny themselves and say no that they become virtuous. And love begins. So everything about the knight's tale is noble and virtuous. When we read in the Miller's tale, we've got a story exactly like the knight's tale, except at a lower level. You've got two men who want to woo Allison. Allison, um, Nicholas is a lodger at the house there with John the carpenter. He wants to woo her, and he finally convinces her to have sex with him. And they do, and John, or Nicholas concocts this story because he knows that John is very religious-minded and susceptible to things. And he says the flood is coming and, and <laughs> puts up those tubs where they, where they can sleep that night so when the flood comes, they'll all be able to float away. I mean, it's just wonderful comedy. Well, on that night, when the two lovers sneak down from the tubs, you remember, they're making love, but um, um, Absalom, who's a student clerk, scholarly kind of, comes because he loves Allison. So he comes to the window to woo her. She tells him to go to hell. He says, just one kiss. Could give me the, if I can get, I've got to read this because you've all got to be shocked before you leave today. <laughs> Here, 101 and 103, we've got to read this. Um, 102. Um, Allison says, I love another, and why shouldn't I too? Better than you, by Jesu, Absalom. Take yourself off, and I shall throw a stone. I want to get some sleep. You go to hell. Alas, said Absalom, I know it well. True love is always mocked. He's a, he's a courtly lover. Yeah? 
-hmm. He knows he's going to be rejected by the woman he loves. That's in the nature of courtly love. She says, get out of here, go to hell. Um, he's moaning, but he's, he, because he's a courtly lover, he's going to remain faithful. So he says, um, for Jesu love and for the love of me, and if I, see, he wants a kiss, and if I do, you'll be off, she said, promise me, darling, answered Absalom. Get ready then, wait, I'll put something on, she said. And then she added under breath to Nicholas, hush, we shall both laugh to death. This Absalom went down upon his knees. I am Lord, he thought, and by degrees there may be more to come. The plot may thicken. Little does he know. <laughs> Mercy, my love, he said. Your mouth, my chicken. He expects her to put out her mouth. It's an orifice. <laughs> and get a kiss. Mercy, my love, he said. Your mouth, my chicken. She flung the window open, then in haste, and said, Have done, come on, no time to waste. The neighbors here are always on the spy. So he wiped his mouth, put his mouth up, put up his mouth and kissed her naked arse. <laughs> Most savagely before she knew of this, and back he started, something was amiss. He knew quite well a woman had no beard, yet something rough and hairy had appeared. What have I done? He said, can that be you, tee-hee, she cried and clapped the window. Anyway, he goes off and he said, I'll, I'll get back, you'll pay for this. Remember the motive of vengeance and envy, because you know that every one of the, almost every one of the stories is told against somebody, and, and in order to get back, the other person tells the story against that person. So this envy and getting back is very much a part of what people are doing with each other. He goes to the blacksmith, and he gets this branding iron and has it heated and then comes back, expecting Alice to stick out her rear again, and, but except this time she's going to be in for a surprise because he's going to take the branding iron and put it on her rear end. 104. Now Nicholas had risen for a piss. Absalom's back. He's calling. He says, come out, my little swire, my, my sweetie thing. Look what I brought you. It's a golden ring. It's very fine and pretty and bathed. I'll give it to you, darling, for a kiss. So he's bribing her. Now Nicholas had risen for a piss, and though he could improve the jape and make him kiss his arse ere he escaped, and opening the window with a jerk stuck out his arse, handsome piece of work, <laughs> God. <laughs> buttocks and all, as far as to the haunch, said Absalom, all set to make a launch. Speak, pretty bird, I know not where thou art. And thus this Nicholas at once let fly a fart. As loud as if it were a thunder clap, he near blinded by the blast. Poor chap, but his hot iron was ready. With a thump, he smote him on the middle of his rump. Now this great scream takes place. Because his, his rear end has just been scalded. John hears the noise upstairs. He's asleep in his tub because he's exhausted from putting all this stuff up. He thinks the flood is coming and he cuts the ropes and down everybody comes. I, I don't want to read this, but I'm just briefly here. In the reefs, now hold on. Two men after a woman. And it ends with a farce. So think about what Chaucer's doing with courtly romance in The Knight's Tale. <coughs> two men with the women. Now you've got two men with the women here, but it's farcical and comic. It's a, you come away with a burnt rear end and all these talk about holes and farts and thunder. And In the Reeves' tale, you've got the same thing. You've got two clerks wanting to come. Now the, um, the Reeve is a carpenter, so he's, he wants to get back in the miller for telling a story on a carpenter. So the, this miller has been cheating everybody. The two clerks want to come and, and watch him to make sure he doesn't cheat. When they're there, the miller goes out and lets their horses go, and the two clerks have to run after them. While they're gone, he takes half their grain. He cheats again. 
tells his wife to take some of the rest of it and make a cake. The men spend the night getting their horses. They come back. The, the miller s- says they can stay there, but he charges them. So he's just making money off the... He's, he, he's been stealing from everybody. Everybody knows him. They eat and get drunk. They go to bed that night. I'll read it next week. I, we, we're out of time. Um, they go to bed drunk, and there's all this snoring and passing gas. And one of the men, um, Alan says, enough of this, and he goes to the bed of the daughter of the Milner and his wife, who's 20. He goes to her bed and jumps in and immediately has sex. She's fine with it. John, back in his bed, is thinking, I'm not going to miss out on this. So he moves the crib next to the John and the wife's um, bed, next to his. The wife gets up to take a pee. She comes back looking for the crib. She finds it there with John in the in the bed, so she jumped in. There's nothing said. They immediately have sex, and Chaucer's description of it was the merriest night in her life. Now, at, and the morning hours come, um, Alan has to get up, and he thinks John is still in the bed. He goes over to that bed, but it's, it's the miller. He crawls into bed and says something about how much he enjoyed sex that night. John is outraged. He flies on, or I mean, the miller's outraged, flies on, they get up, they fight, they're knocked to the floor, and the, the, the miller ends up um, being knocked on the wife. She picks up a stick, thinking it's Alan, and knocks her husband over the head. He falls to the floor, and the two clerks kick him viciously. And here's the point I want to make. The Knight's Tale. Miller's, the Reeves. Every one of them is about courtly love, but it gets lower and lower and more violent and bestial. Um, and each one turns on a fall. Our seat falls off a horse. John, when the noise, when the commotion starts, cuts the ropes, and it falls, and everything collapses. And um, in the Reeves' tale, the men fall out of bed onto the floor, and they're kicked. So Chaucer is, is showing the same paradigm, the courtly romance, at different levels. And you can say one is noble, one is a parody, it's comic, and one is almost savage. Mm-hmm. And, and you can say with, with Boethius, it's due. Because the miller's getting just what he deserves. He's been cheating everybody. He, he carries knives around ready to fight with people. He's just a vicious man. So we're watching, <laughs> in Boethian terms, we're watching a kind of justice in the way people deal with courtly romance. But we're clearly in a fall, and this is going to take us into the Canterbury Tales, and it's going to continue to get raucous. Here, here's the question I'm going to leave you with. Where's Christ? Where's God in these tales? And lots. one of the, one of the parishioners in the evening class said, she told, I think her daughter, that she was doing the Canterbury... She's Catholic. She told her daughter she was raised reading Canterbury Tales, and her daughter said, are you kidding? You would read Chaucer? Because the assumption is that he's so I, well, promiscuous, maybe so... Immoral. Yeah, that they can't, and, and yet he's absolutely Catholic. So here's my question. Is, Tosh, is Chaucer teaching us something about the body that's important for us? Has a change taken place from Chaucer's time to ours? Should... Should I censor this book and take it away from you guys? Should we not be reading this or should we? What's going on? Just turn the TV on.
that, you know, that, that Kath, I, I, I told you, we did the study guide for a Catholic on home school, and, and the, the guy who runs it, this is really upsetting, the guy who runs it is a businessman. People were complaining to him about the Catholic study questions first, and other people, Catholics, were complaining about Chaucer. So are we doing something we shouldn't be doing here? I'll just leave that with you guys. It's good to see you all again.